Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 40 freaking 8. Wow, I cannot believe 48 episodes already. That's pretty pretty awesome. I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey. Hey, how's it going, man? It's early. It is early. This is so unusual. It's always strange to broadcast during the day when that big yellow thing is up there, but uh, wow, this is like really, really early. <laughs> Comic fans as a species tend to shy away from the sun, so there you go. <laughs> I think my wife is a little bit irritated with me because, you know, she has to get up and go to work every day early in the morning and everything, and, you know, she hates the sound of the alarm clock. Well, this morning it was the sound of my alarm clock, because I set it to get up to do this, and she's like, what the hell is your alarm going off? And, you know, she's all sleepy and bleary-eyed and everything. (laughs) Sorry, dear. I told her, I said, but at least mine didn't go off like 4,000 times before I finally got up and got going. God, her alarm clock will just go off and go off and go, and it's like, I don't understand people that don't set their alarm and when it goes off they spring out of bed cuz I am just like that. I maybe it's maybe it's you know the 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 military, you know, in me or whatever, but you know, mine goes off one time and I'm up. Hers goes off like I don't know how many freaking times. It's like, you know, go off, hit the snooze, go back to sleep. I uh. set mine an hour ahead of time so I can hit the snooze a couple of times. <laughs> I don't understand that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, there, there's a psychological component to it. If I set it an hour ahead of time, of when I actually want to get up, and the alarm starts going off, I have that that deep and unbiting satisfaction of being able to hit the snooze and go back to bed. And by the time that happens a couple of times, I'm ready to wake up. I'm not a morning person. I am not good right after I wake up. That's just <laughs> my personality. If I could sleep till like 9 or 10 every day, I would. But sometimes <laughs> I just can't, so I do what I can. My wife's the same way, so it's kind of nice that we both have that that in us so that yeah. we don't have too many arguments. So See, That's like me. I'm, I'm right in the middle because I, I, you know... I could never be one of those like five, six o'clock in the morning people, although I did that for many years. But, you know, on the other end, I couldn't be one of those, you know, noon to one o'clock in the afternoon people like my sister either, because it's like, then the fucking day is shot, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle. I'm like 10 o'clock is, you know, left to my own devices. I'd probably sleep to about 10 o'clock every day, which to a lot of people's halfway through the day already too, I suppose. But <laughs> anyway. What are we talking about? Oh, comic books, comic books. But first, let's uh, let's cover some feedback. Okay. 
I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to break the fourth wall for a moment. I, I've got a few that I, I, I created a little folder, and I, I stuck some in here as little text files. And I'm not sure where they came from. I'm not sure if I pulled these out of our Gmail account and just kind of, I don't I, I hate to admit it, but maybe forgot about them for a little bit. Or maybe these are from our website. I'm not sure, but we got some really nice feedback. I've been meaning to address them, and that file's just been kind of sitting there and I've been forgetting to address it. So we're going to whip through those quick and then we're going to go on to our, our regular Gmail account feedback. But first we got one from uh, our buddy Billy Hogan that does the Superman Fan Podcast. And this is feedback for episode 40. He says, Scott, I was pleasantly surprised to hear you to, uh, excuse me, hear you read two of my emails right off the bat. No need to apologize for not reading them on an earlier episode. I'm not writing emails to hear them read on a podcast. Just sharing my thoughts on something I enjoy listening to. When you read the part about the old Disney magazine distributed through uh, Gulf gas stations in the late 60s and early 70s, it brought back uh, to my memory something else they distributed uh, during the Apollo moon missions, Gulf gas stations distributed to their customers a punch-out sheet of the lunar module that you could put together. Oh, that's cool. The crew compartment was a separate piece from the lander engine section. Uh, I used to have the issues of West Coast Avengers that Michael talked about. I enjoyed this issue as well, but found the Scarlet Witch storyline uh, about her children disappearing too bizarre at the time. House of M was not the fir uh, the first time she went bonkers. Yeah, she's had a history of going kind of wacko. Um, he says, I enjoyed John Byrne's art of this era. My favorite Byrne comics after Fantastic Four and Superman was his Dark Horse series Next Men, uh, where he showed his uh, or he showed how superpowers would affect human physiology. The overall story was excellent. Yeah, you know, I don't hear enough good things about Next Men. And I think maybe it's a it's a problem where it's an unfinished story. At least in my mind, it's an unfinished story. I, I think that the resolution of that uh, whole thing was very unsatisfying if you had been following it right along like I was at the time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's excellent. And it's funny that you can get that on the extreme cheap. I think the only issue of that that's that's hard to find, and it may be pricey, I, I couldn't tell you what the number of it was, but they're, one of the issues of that series is the first appearance of Hellboy. And ah. so it prices out pretty high, or at least it used to. I don't, I don't keep up with that sort of thing anymore. But uh, the other project that's attached to Next Men that is really, really worth your time and money if you can find a copy is the... Uh, I don't know if it's considered a graphic novel or just a prestige format one shot or what, but it was called 2112. And it's loosely tied in to the whole Next Men thing. But that's a really good book. Very Is it an adaptation of the Rush album? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know all that much about Rush, to be honest with you. They have an album called 2112. Oh, okay. So. But, uh, yeah... I it's been so long that since I've read it, I couldn't really tell you that much about it. I need to dig it back out and read it again. But I remember reading it at the time and just thinking, wow, this is just classic burn, fire on, on all cylinders. It's right up there with, like, uh, you know, Superman, Batman, Generations, or even, you know, his uh, stuff he's doing for IDW with Star Trek right now. You know, when, when Burn is clicking, he's he's great, you know? Mm -hmm. and uh, And sadly, they're... His work that clicks is spotty post Superman, at least in this fan's opinion. But uh, but twenty one twelve was was one of his better projects. Anyway, 
Billy continues, uh, I've got the Elseworlds story Batman in Darkest Night. Uh, I love these Elseworlds stories because I was a sucker for the 60s imaginary stories DC published. Yeah, you and me both, brother. He says, I like this story, but it wasn't my favorite. I liked Detective 27 and Scar of the Bat better. What, what is Detective 27? I don't think I've heard of that one. If I'm remembering the plot of the book correctly, I've never actually read it. It was written by Michael Uslin, who produced the Batman films right. and, and Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you see a documentary involving DC Comics, he's all over it uh, these days. But Detective 27 was like... Uh, he, Bruce is somehow the 27th detective in this agency. And it's a play on the first appearance of right. Batman. So. Yeah, Scar the Bat I've heard of. I heard that was really good. He's kind of like Elliot Ness type of thing, yeah. right? Going after uh, Al Capone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I've explained before on the forums. I don't know if I ever addressed it on the show. I actually don't really have a problem with Elseworlds as a concept, I think it's great. You know, it, it seems like for a couple episodes there, I was just dogging on Elseworlds again and again and again. I, I just think the main problem is is that DC one was putting out too many involving Batman. Right. It seems like eighty five percent of the Elseworlds out there are about Batman, which kind of makes sense because at the time he was the character that was having major motion pictures right. released about him and a popular animated series. But I, I just think that especially right around 98, 99, and 2000, they were just releasing Elseworld after Elseworld after Elseworld, and these things were like five, six bucks a piece. Right. And, you know, if you're releasing a $6 prestige format book, that thing better be one of the greatest things <laughs> to ever be printed on paper. Right. And... The f- sad fact of the matter is, is that a lot of them were mediocre. Yeah, there were there weren't a whole lot that were truly terrible. You know, like I would throw it across the room and then set the entire room on fire because the room was somehow tainted right. by the comics' presence. Well, that was but, my feeling on them as well. Is that there was a glut of them all at one time because now they're kind of few and far between. It feels like, but you know, there was a glut of them, and most of them were eh at best. That yeah. that's sad. I mean, for every generations, you had uh, what's a good example? Superman Incorporated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, where, where where Clark Kent took advantage of his powers to become a media and sports juggernaut. Yeah, that's what the kids want. <laughs> <laughs> he wraps up by saying, "Great episode as always, Billy Hogan in Eustace, Florida. Thank you, Billy." Appreciate the feedback. Always good to hear from you. Alrighty, we got uh, we got one from our good friend Dion Cottrell. Is this the first time he's written back to the bins? Uh gosh, you know, between uh, sometimes that line between back to the bins and and tales of the JSA is completely blurred for me. So I cannot remember if this is his first time to this show or not. Anyways, he writes Jerry Bingham is an underrated artist. If there ever were one. Unfortunately, the Elseworlds line became so diluted by the time In Darkest Night came out in 1994 that even his pencils couldn't save the weak, weak plot. It's a shame only that DC didn't reserve the Elseworlds imprint for fewer and better stories rather than everything in the kitchen sink. 
Kudos for highlighting John Byrne's look at the original Human Torch. While there are undoubtedly some problems, I find his run on West Coast Avengers, Avengers West Coast, to be one of his best post-Superman work. And 250 in particular was a true zinger. I was pleased to see Marvel return to the character in Ed Brubaker's Cap, as well as the current limited series, as I think Marvel can and should be doing more with its timely heroes. Yes, my Golden Age bias is showing. Huh? You know, it's kind of funny, as much as I, I absolutely love DC's Golden Age characters, I have never, outside of Cap, the Human Torch, and Submariner, never been a big fan of, of Marvel's Golden Age characters. I, I don't. I honestly don't know enough about them. I don't think that they've done enough with them to make them familiar, at least to this fan, you know. And I would, I would be curious to check them out, only because, you know, you just named the three big ones, and, you know, Cap is, you know, of course, one of my favorite characters. The Golden Age Human Torch, I find him interesting, but he's not like, you know, oh, he's awesome to me. He's just kind of like, eh, he's kind of cool. And then Namor, never liked Namor. Always thought Namor was a super lame character. So, you know, if there's other untapped awesomeness out there in in Marvel's Golden Age, then yeah, I wish that they would uh, spotlight some of that stuff. I'd be curious to check it out because I, I have a affinity for Golden Age characters as well, even though I'm not really much of a fan of Golden Age stories just because I, I can't get past the, the style a lot of times. Uh, he also, oh, I agree completely on that, by the way. <laughs> Seems like I was like, blowing you off, but I wasn't. Uh, Dion continues, I should have mentioned it sooner, but, but perhaps you can cover Marvel Fanfare number 29 after you finish Burns' last regular issue, number 319. Uh, Marvel uh, Fanfare 29 came out a few months after Burn left the ongoing title, but it's a nice companion of sorts if you think it's worth bothering with. I vividly recall my younger self being ecstatic as I brought, <laughs> bought and read each new issue of Burns' too short run off the newsstand. How devastated I was when he disappeared with issue 320. I didn't realize at the time, of course, that Byrne was moving to DC and the Superman franchise. All in all, the next two years of Super Issues uh, made the trade-off worth it, I think. Oh, I absolutely. Hate I hate those issues. I, th I think that entire run sucks. <laughs> yeah, the hell you do. Which is a complete and utter lie. <laughs> That's why you're doing a whole podcast devoted to it. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, on the Marvel Fanfare 29 thing, uh, just let Dion know way ahead of you, buddy. We got you covered. Oh, yes. Very <laughs> much so. It's an interesting story. Yes. Yes, I like that, that issue very much. Okay, we got uh, one from our buddy uh, Jose Rivera. And he writes in to say, just finished listening to Back to the Bins. I didn't notice anything with the running time. I liked the email portion. Again, no worries or criticisms. Keep the show going the way it is. And yeah, Darkest Night was meh. <laughs> but I felt uh, the same way about Speeding Bullets. I don't, I don't know if I've read that one yet or not. The one with uh, Superman as Batman? Yeah, I, I have it, but I don't think I've read it yet. I, I, if I have, it didn't make an, enough of an impression because I don't remember. It's he the, says, "It's um, the first example of ma mashing of villains and that not working." Ah, uh, okay. See, I I like that with the hero thing. I like the idea of let's turn this on its ear by making you know Superman Batman or Batman Superman or whatever. I think that's cool, but that was 
probably my main complaint or my main issue with Dark uh, in Darkest Night was that they felt the need to then follow through with every Batman villain then got a Green Lantern makeover. And that's where it lost me. I was like, well, that's just kind of stupid. You know, I, I didn't feel, where's the need for that? You know, the, you've already got Batman as Green Lantern. Just leave it there. You know, just just let that be the story you're telling. Why, why do you have to suddenly make the Joker Sinestro? It, it was really, that's where it lost me. But anyway... He continues, wow, you went all out mentioning Americomics. I had the issue where Dan Garrett Blue Beetle is holding the Ted Cord Blue Beetle on the cover. Uh, I bought it because I'm a Beetle fan, but also because of that cover. Uh, not a bad read if I say so myself. I, I've never seen that issue. I'd like to check that out. Uh, and he says, and I don't mind the Silver Age Adam. If I remember backups around this time, wasn't Airwave one of the backups as well? Yeah, um... I think my introduction to Airwave was uh, there's a great cover. I think it's Action Comics. It's either Action Comics or Superman. Um, and I think it's a Rich Buckler cover where he's punching the hell out of this lame villain called uh, Microwave Man. Yes. And uh, it had an Airwave backup. And I'm pretty sure as a kid that was my introduction to uh, to Airwave, who I always thought was kind of an interesting character. I, I liked the art. Didn't Alex Alex Saviak did a lot of the, the art on those, didn't he? Yes, and Bob Rosakis wrote a lot of them. It was when Action had a rotating Aquaman Adam. That's right, yeah. Backup feature, and they threw Airwave in there. And the interesting about, the thing about the Airwave stories, and the reason why I liked them, it was it was literally a hero in training. Yes. Like he, he would be fighting a villain, and he would remember something that Green Arrow or Aquaman or the Atom told him about being a superhero. So it was a really nuts and bolts type of, uh, of story, kind of like Firestorm, except different. It had that same vibe because right. it was a young hero. And... If I'm remembering it correctly, because this is the one detail I always seem to forget about, it's like his girlfriend knew he was Airwave, but he never wanted to tell her he was Airwave, and she was constantly covering for him. Oh, that's that's cool. That's and very I'm cool. Thinking something like that happened, it was kind of funny. Kind of like a Pete Ross type of type of yeah, situation. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Um, well, yeah, it's funny you should mention uh, Firestorm because even as a kid, I remember thinking that or feeling that they were missing an opportunity there. And then many years later, when we got the dynamic between Wally West and um, and Kyle Rayner, I remember thinking back to to uh, Airwave and Firestorm as a kid and thinking, "Wow, you know those those two characters could have totally been like uh, Wally and Kyle." You know that that mm-hmm. they were they were the junior heroes that you know became fast friends because everybody else was you know these icons that they were trying to to fit in with and measure up to and all that. So yeah, I would I would have liked that if uh I think maybe the problem was that Airwave was was strictly backup fodder. You know, he'd never achieved his own title or anything like that, which is a shame cuz I, I think he could have carried a book at least for a while anyway. Uh really quick, I do have the first issue of Americomics. I found it in a 50 cent bin. What's in that one? It's it's the it's the Carlton characters. Oh, cool. I've never read it. Well, no, I read it once, like, ten years ago when I bought it. But uh, it seemed like right before DC got that license, they put out these books. Right, it's yeah. weird. Yeah, it is. It's it's, it's that in-between period, just, right, you know, pr- just prior to the crisis and all that. But, yeah, I've got one. I think it's a special. I don't think it's a regular issue of Americomics. It's like 
I'm, I'm almost, I don't think it's an annual, but it's, I can't remember the exact title of it. Maybe I'll dig that out sometime and talk about it on the show. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, just a big old team up with all of the, the Charlton guys that DC would eventually require all in one story. And it was, it was pretty, pretty cool. Alrighty. Uh, we got the first one from Charlie Niemeyer. It says, well, since Scott asked so nicely, I'm sending this email because the email bin was empty. <laughs> so I went on a little shopping spree last weekend going through the 50-cent boxes at a local comics slash toy slash video game slash DVD store. Love those. We were in one of those uh, earlier in February. Uh, I picked up quite a haul, including the first issue of Alpha Flight. Ooh and several issues of Burns Run on Namor. Good stuff. Liked that stuff. Uh, I would be interested in both of your opinions on this run, as I have not heard much about it. I haven't had a chance to read yet, any yet, but the art looks great. It's interesting. I, I, I liked Burns Run on Namor, actually. He, he did some interesting things with the character. He did some interesting things with a character named Spitfire, uh, who was a, a speedster-type character from The Invaders who had mm-hmm. been an older woman, and somehow, I forget how this happened, she got to be young again. So he was kind of dealing with her having to stop dressing like a dowdy old woman and and, <laughs> and dressing a little more fashionably for the business world. But it, it was basically Namor comes on land and starts a business. Right. And, become, and becomes kind of like a, a Bruce Wayne Tony Stark type character and he, he fought the Griffin and there were some revelations about Namora uh, or Namorita uh, his cousin or yeah cousin yeah I think she's his cousin uh, and and how how messed up that went so I'm just going to leave it at that because that's right. a good reveal and then he brought back Iron Fist supposedly yeah. There was this whole thing about this plant world. I didn't read past when he stopped drawing it because I wasn't really a big fan of Jay Lee's artwork. Me either. It's funny you say that because, yeah, I dropped that like a hot potato as soon as... But the only thing that could have ever got me to read Namor was this run with Burn because this was at a time where you know my, my Burn enthusiasm was still extremely high because there was a time... That you know, just prior to Man of Steel, when I really, really, really got into John Byrne, and for a time owned every single thing he'd ever worked on. You know, every from from the smallest little thing like uh, Charlton's Speedy and the Chopper Bunch, whatever issue it was, he he did of that, right up to you know great big high profile things. I was just a complete Byrne fanatic, and when he went to Namor. I that was sort of the beginning of the end for me because I was like, oh god, Namor, really? But I, I read it, and uh, while I don't have real strong memories of it or anything, the one thing that that I did like, the one thing that really impressed me with that run was that right out of the gate, Burns seemed to realize, at least to me, it felt like that a lot of people don't like this character and so in you know what what one of the things that burn does that i don't feel he gets enough credit for is he'll fix things a lot of times even just little tiny things that maybe you didn't even realize were a problem or that were an issue you know little things from continuity things to like what he did with namor that i really liked was that right off the bat he addressed the fact that namor is kind of a dick 
And he gave an actual scientific explanation for why Namor has been such an asshole over the years. You know, like why, why one minute he's, you know, fighting for America and democracy in World War II. And then the next minute he's invading New York with giant freaking whales and stuff and trying to kill everybody. And he rationed that all out and gave an explanation. And I bought it. I thought it was pretty cool. And uh, I thought the rest of the thing was kind of hit and miss. Mostly just because I don't care for that character. And then a lot of the the storylines and a lot of the the guest stars and stuff. You know, like I think he had Wolverine and then a couple of issues. And then Iron Fist. I just really don't care about any of those characters very much. So, you know, it was enjoyable. But, you know... Like Michael said, you know, as soon as Byrne was gone, I was gone because it was one of those things where I was buying it because of my dedication to him, not to anything that he was particularly doing with the title. But go, addressing your other one, Alpha Flight, love that shit, love yes. that shit. And it, you know, it's so weird to me that you can buy that stuff in fifty cent bins. You can get the entire Burn run out of fifty cent bins if if you just you know are patient and look around, and it is totally worth it. You know, a lot of times that happens where stuff winds up in 50 cent bins and I, I wonder if because stuff is cheap, people think it's not worth checking. Oh, this must suck if it's in the 50 cent bin. And and there's a lot of, lot of books, a lot of books where that couldn't be further from the truth. That I scratch my head when I see stuff like that in the 50 cent bin. I'm like, wow, why is this so cheap? You know, this should be awesome. You know, as far as, you know, collectability and, and value and stuff like that. But for some weird reason, Alpha Flight's all over the 50 cent bins. I would highly recommend picking that stuff up. It's good reading. Indeed. Indeed. We got one more. Oh, this is from our buddy uh, Steve Rogers. This is addressing the Mask of the Phantasm episode. Wow, this is going back a ways. He says, a uh, bit behind in my listening to Scott's podcasting empire he says, so I don't know if this was brought up in the Two True Freaks portion of the crossover, but in the Phantasm episode, the discussion of all things Phantasm post-film uh, didn't cover Andrea's appearance in the JLU episode, I think titled Epilogue. Yes, that's right. It was Epilogue. The second to last season finale for the show. Uh, that attempt to solidify the linkage of Bruce and Terry. Um Andrea shows up and for and for briefly was going to go along with the plan set in motion by Amanda Waller, but in the end decides not to and is shown to be chewing Amanda out for putting her in that position. Anyway, just thought it deserves uh, a mention as it was an appearance by Phantasm slash Andrea Beaumont post Mask of the Phantasm. Good episode, actually. Well, depending on your view of Batman Beyond, I've heard it uh, be ripped to shreds like uh, Scott rips certain franchise reboots for most of the same reasons and its place in the Batman mythos. Steve. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny because when Batman Beyond came along, I was not a fan. I really was opposed to this whole idea of, of creating a whole new side and a whole new... Uh, mythos you know a, a peripherally attached mythos for batman and all that but over the years you know I, i've come to feel that you know it has its place and all that but i've only ever seen a handful of episodes i, I just I, the biggest thing for me is it, it just didn't really interest me it, it was taking 
Batman to to a, a place that I just didn't personally care for. I think Batman works best in his own element. You know, the the street yes. level crime and stuff like that. That's that's one of the reasons why I'm so disappointed with the movies that every single movie seems to fi- fixate on you know the villains and they do them so over the top and they come off a little bit silly to me when they're trying to do these you know these dark and gritty batman stories but then he has these completely you know just silly villains i think i would love to see a batman film that was just street level batman fighting you know thugs and mobsters and stuff you know that that's to me when batman works at his absolute best and so the you know for the same reason that I have a prejudice against Batman going out in space and fighting aliens in the 50s I have a prejudice against Batman in the future you know living in you know this I don't even know what you would describe it it reminded me a lot of where the legion lives because I I always thought that that dark and gr- gritty Gotham of the future looked a hell of a lot like the metropolis of the 30th century that I saw in Legion as a kid it just looks a lot the same to me, and so I don't think Batman functions well in that in that environment. But that's just me. But anyway, I can't remember actually if we did talk about epilogue in our uh, in our Mask of the Phantasm coverage. But if we if we didn't, I'd be really surprised because we seem to cover pretty much everything that had to do with uh, Andrea Boma and the Phantasm. But anyway, thanks for bringing it up because if. If we didn't mention it, then uh, then we were remiss because that is a really solid episode. I really really enjoyed that one because again, you know, even though I wasn't a big fan of Batman Beyond and, and didn't watch a lot of it, I liked the elements of that show where they really tied the the whole thing together. You know, like like epilogue, um, Batman Return of the Joker is one you know fantastic movie. I really really liked that one. And then there was that two-parter JLU episode where they went into the future. And Batman, you know, the regular Batman, met his future self from Batman Beyond. And, I, and they worked together. And I thought that was really cool, too. So not not a hater of Batman Beyond. Just not, not really a fan, either. I loved the show. Yeah? I loved Batman Beyond. And I really did. I thought it was a solid show. I thought it was an interesting take on the Batman legend. And I just really bought into it, mainly because I, I think one of the, the things that sealed the deal for that show was the fact that Kevin Conroy was doing the voice of the older Bruce Wayne. Right, yeah. So it did feel like, okay, there's a continuity here. Right. I can see this. So I, I, I was a big fan of it. Cool. Well, what you say? I think that's good for emails for, yes, sir. for today. All right. A little bit of backstory on this one for my choice today. For one thing, I should have brought a Marvel to the table today, and I didn't. I decided to shake things up a little bit because I decided to reread something. Normally this show, almost always with this show, we're bringing you stuff from our vast, unread stacks of comic books that both Michael and I have. Um, but because of uh, of digging through back issues and, and looking back, you know, on, on Tales of the JSA, you know, we have the segment, you know, elsewhere in the DC universe. It got me thinking a lot about a, a title and a character that I really enjoyed as a kid and realizing that, wow, it's been years since I read that and I really can't remember what the hell was going on with the story. I just had vague memories of having really enjoyed it. And so I decided to reread some stuff. And a story in particular that I remember just absolutely loving 
as a kid. So I was like, I got to dig that out and reread it. I dug it out, reread it, and I thought, this will make an interesting something to talk about for Back to the Bin. So there you are. This is, we're going back to 1977 for this one. This is DC Special Series number one. Ah. Cover by Neil Adams. And it's awesome, man. Beautiful, beautiful Neil Adams cover. And it features the Adam, Green uh, Lantern, the Flash, Aquaman, and Batman. All like, uh, it's like they're busting out from, it almost looks like they're busting out of having been buried or something because there's all these rocks and it's they're all like exploding out of the ground. And uh, the cover calls this five-star superhero spectacular. This was an 80-page all-new stories dollar comic. A uh, sensational summer special, it says. Five fabulous all-new epics. And, um, wow, there's some talent in this book. You know, the, right in the, the very beginning, it has a title splash page by Jim Aparo that's really, really beautiful. And then there's stories in there that feature, you know, all those characters, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Adam, with, uh, you know, work by such talents as, like, Carrie Bates, Irv Norvik, uh, Frank McLaughlin, uh, Denny O'Neill, Joe Staten, uh, Jerry Conway, Dick Dillon, Jack Abel, Paul Kupperberg, Steve Stiles, who I really like, and uh, Bob McLeod. But the story that I'm going to focus on, the one that I really want to discuss for, for this purposes, is the Batman portion of the book which is written by Martin Pascal with art by Mike Nasser and Joe Rubenstein. Ooh. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful art. Now, this story was originally intended to be Cobra number eight. And Mike Nasser did the last two issues of Cobra. This is what put, put me in mind of it is when we had talked about Cobra briefly over on uh, Tales of the JSA. Mike Nasser did the last two issues of Cobra, which were six and seven. And I had those as a kid and, and always really, really enjoyed those stories. And so when we were talking about that, I got to thinking back to, you know, I remember there being a, a, a story where Batman fought Cobra, and I think that's drawn by Mike Nasser. And it got me to thinking about it, and so I did a little research, and sure enough, the, the story I was thinking of was this one that was in Five Star Superhero Spectacular, and when I read it, sure enough, it's a direct continuation from the end of Cobra number seven, because it was intended to be number eight. And the story was already finished and everything, but that title got canceled, so they just put the story into this book. So the story is entitled The Dead on Arrival Conspiracy. And we open to a beautiful full-page splash panel of what I'd call like inverted Batman. He's, he's basically, he's upside down in the panel, but what it is is he's swinging high above the streets of Gotham City, so you're getting a really cool perspective shot of Batman. And uh, Batman witnesses a soundless explosion, and he decides to check it out, and he discovers two goons robbing a post office. So Batman makes quick work of them and uh, takes a letter off of one of the unconscious guys uh, realizing that that apparently is what they were after. And as he kind of ponders the fact that uh, these can't simply be just run-of-the-mill ripoff artists with the technology that they were using to break in, he is uh, distracted in his thoughts and he gets clubbed from behind by one of the guys. And as he recovers, he's just in time to see the bad guys escaping by some sort of beam of light kind of like a tractor beam, I guess, that draws them up into the sky. 
and he snaps a picture of them with his handy-dandy bat camera, and then he's left with nothing but the letter. So he's looking at that, trying to figure out well, what's so important about this letter, and he is shocked to discover that it is that the letter is addressed to Bruce Wayne. Dun, 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 dun. So later, at the always awesome Wayne penthouse, Batman uh, recounts the letter to Alfred the butler, and it is the sad, sad, sad tale of Jason Burr, who is the separated Siamese twin of the evil Cobra. Uh, what follows is an origin story for Cobra and Burr, which I'll re- recap as, <laughs> as fast as I possibly can. Uh, Burr and Cobra were separated shortly after birth. They were born Siamese twins, and their parents were told that the baby that would later become Cobra had died. So they just raised Burr. In fact, though, he was actually kidnapped and raised by these Cobra cultists to become their fanatical leader. And today it's a role that he relishes. Um, But Burr and Cobra still share this psychic bond between them that allows each twin to feel whatever physically happens to the other one. So even though they are now mortal enemies, you know, totally opposed to the other's philosophy... They cannot destroy uh, each other. You know, one cannot destroy the other without causing himself to be killed as well. Whew, got it? All right, good, because that's, <laughs> that's as good as you're getting. Anyway, Burr's letter to Wayne was Burr's backup plan in case he failed in his mission to stop Cobra. So he implores Wayne to seek out the assistance of the Batman and brings him up to speed on everything. At his secret headquarters, Cobra, who has found a means to actually overcome the psychic link by means of a neural neutralizer. That's actually what it's called in the story. It cracked me up. (laughs) Tortures tortures the uh, story of the letter to Wayne out of Burr. Batman, using his gorgeously rendered bat jet, it really looks... It's not a bat plane in this one. It's actually like... uh, It looks like a Lear jet to me, but it's painted like jet black with this giant yellow like bat symbol on the front of it. It's really cool, and I don't recall having seen this very many times in the comics. I thought it was really, really cool. Uh, He wings his way to where he rather improbably deduced where Cobra was hanging out, which is the old um, mountain stronghold of his archenemy, Ray Shagul. So that was another element of the story that I really liked was, you know, going back and, and revisiting that, that whole element, which I always, I always liked that when Batman would go to uh Ray's mountain hideout and, you know, have, he would always have to fight his way in and stuff like that. Well, he does pretty much the same thing this time. You know, he arrives and he stealthily makes his way into the base and he disguises, disguises himself as a Cobra follower but he's pretty quickly found out when a couple of Cobra's men realize that, uh, hey, he's a white guy, which I, I got a real kick out of that when they realized that. Uh, he throws off his disguise and valiantly fights his way through hordes of these fanatics, uh, but he's eventually overpowered and gassed. And upon waking, Batman finds himself shackled back to back with Burr, and they're both hanging suspended, uh, suspended rather, over a Lazarus pit. Cobra then reveals his evil plan. He's tampered with this pit, and he's gained the ability to where now 
the pit will uh, return the dead to life, but the, it will put them completely under Cobra's power, so they become, you know, his slaves. Uh, he intends to kill Batman and Burr and then resurrect them to follow him. So in typical dumbass comic book villain style, Cobra has more important things to do elsewhere than hang around and make sure that his evil scheme actually works. So while he wanders off, it allows Batman to free himself and Burr through some really clever use of his utility belt and, you know, some gymnastics. Basically, they just swing back and forth over the pit until Batman causes an explosion that blows them free. Batman pursues and beats the crap out of Cobra, uh, who, by the way, has this uh, really awesome Dead Man-esque glow all around him that's showing us, the reader, that the, uh, the neural neutralizer is uh, still in effect, so... For the moment, he and Burr are, are not psychically attached, you know, through the physical pain thing that they share and whatever. This is very important. Burr rescues his girlfriend, who had been captured and, and was under uh, Cobra's thrall, and they proceed down off the mountain in a, you know, one of those cable car things. Uh, as Burr professes his love for his girlfriend and he hugs her to him and all that and he's you know so glad to finally be reunited with her this was this was a big plot in cobra was that he was trying to rescue his girlfriend from cobra he suddenly realizes as he's holding her how cold how very very cold and how <gasps> lifelessly cold that she is but he realizes all this too late because she plunges this huge nasty looking dagger deep into his back and then throws him screaming from the cable car. It's really, really an awesome, the, the way it's drawn and, and all carried out. Cobra, who's been beaten to the ground by Batman, senses his sibling's death and gloats about his victory over his twin and how Burr never realized that the girl was actually a resurrected slave that was totally under his control. Batman then literally kicks the shit out of Cobra, and even goes so far as to announce that he is considering killing Cobra when Cobra unexpectedly throws himself off the cliff that they're fighting on, um, apparently to plunge to his doom, which was really cool. But he's saved at the last minute. He gets snagged by that light beam, tractor beam thing, and taken up into the sky. And the story ends where Batman, fist clench and really pissed off, swears that the Justice League will destroy his empire and that Cobra will be brought to justice. And, you know, this has happened before on this show and just in life in general, where every once in a while I'll go back and I'll reread some old comic or, or a book or whatever, something that I loved from my childhood. You know, maybe it was an old movie like the, the Superman musical that I loved so much when I was a kid. And I'll be shocked and dismayed and horrified that, wow, not only didn't this hold up, maybe, but also sometimes, you know, that it outright sucks or it's horrible or whatever. Thank God. I mean, I'm telling you, I was, I was just ready to get on my knees and praise Jesus that this is nowhere near one of those instances. I l still love this story. It still holds up. It is still such a great, great book. And one of the things that really puts this one over the top for me, I, I can't uh, underestimate 
the uh, the importance of Mike Nasser's artwork on this. It's I mean it's gorgeous. I mean if you like uh, you know the classic Batman stuff by Neil Adams where he fought uh, Ra's al Ghul in the desert and all that. If you liked uh, Batman Son of the Demon, you know where he went back to uh, Ra's hideout and all that. You would love this story. It, it, it the the artwork. It's similar to Adams, but without you know ripping him off or aping him or anything like that. Uh, Nasser has his own distinct style, but it's uh, it, it still fits perfectly within like the Adams framework. You know that 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 era it totally fits with that entire era of the way Batman was drawn. I, I love his he fully utilizes Batman's cape for real dramatic effect and everything. He draws a very sleek and dynamic Batman, just like Adams used to draw. And uh, it's, it's just gorgeous. I mean, panel after panel in this is, is just art. I mean, it's truly art, not just comics, not just getting from, you know, one panel to another. It's, it's dynamic to look at. And that really helps propel the story and, 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 you know, keep it being a page turner, but also, Martin Pascal, who admittedly for me is very hit and miss. I mean, he can be really, really great, and he can really, really have some real crap. I think this is a fantastic story. I, I just, I really like it. I like the way it, it goes along. It, it feels like, you know, Batman when Batman really works, but it also feels a lot like, uh, almost like a James Bond movie. You know, with the, with the plot and the way things are unfolding, but it keeps enough of the Batman mythos and it keeps enough of just the classic batman feel you know where the villain lays out his evil plan and then he goes oh i've got something i gotta go do which gives batman the opportunity to you know show how smart he is and get out of the death trap and all that i I love that it's great and uh just just an all-around fantastic issue i'm so glad that this held up to to what i remember it to be have you ever read this story mike no, never read it, unfortunately. Sounds good. I'm looking at a page of it right now on Mike Netzer's, or Nasser, same guy, on yeah, his yeah, Wikipedia he, page, and it looks and it looks absolutely awesome. Yeah, back in the day, back during this time, he was Mike Nasser, N-A-S-S-E-R. And then he just kind of dropped off the face of comics for quite a while, and I'm not sure exactly why. I've read the story, and now I can't remember what it was all about. And he came back yeah, many he, years he, later. He got involved in, in in the Middle East. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Became uh, like a peacenik or something like yeah, that, I think. I'm, I'm reading the entry right now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, he also looks like Grizzly Adams. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely got like the Alan Moore thing going on. <laughs> cause, uh, I, I friended him recently through, uh, through Facebook. And you know... It it always strikes me every time I see what a comics creator looks like. I don't know what I was expecting, but they never ever look like what I think they're going to look like. And and he was probably the the biggest shock of all because he, yeah he he looks like uh, a cross between like Charles uh, Manson and and uh, Grizzly Adams. He looks a lot to me like those pictures you would see of uh, oh who's that Russian the the. Is it Lenin? No, it's not Lenin. 
I can't remember what it is. Rasputin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, somebody like that. Yeah, with the you know with the sh- shaggy beard and all that. But you know, I'm not knocking the guy. It's just it's funny. He just didn't look like anything I thought he would look like. But yeah. Anyway, he finally did come back to comics, and and today he's known as uh, Mike Netzer. It's uh, N E T Z E R. Same dude, same guy, and uh, still got it, man. I mean, whenever I see he doesn't do a whole lot anymore, but whenever I do see some artwork by him, I, I'm still blown away by. It. I still think he's uh, he's a fantastic artist. But this original classic stuff that he was doing in the in the 70s just blows me away. Every everything I've ever seen of his, I've just it's just impressed the hell out of me. I, I wish he had done more because he's fantastic. But a really solid story. I'm not sure if it's ever been reprinted anywhere. I should have looked that up. I, I didn't get time to look that up. But uh, if you've got the means to get a hold of this, um, this is DC Special Series number one. Well worth your money just for the Batman story. And it sounds like it. it. Sounds awesome. Yeah. That's why I was so quiet during your thing. I was like, <laughs> wow, this sounds great. Uh, I've got something a little off the beaten path. It's a comic book, but it's not a story. And this year... Uh, DC is celebrating its 75th anniversary, uh, which I think is kind of awesome that they are finally somewhat celebrating an anniversary, considering for Batman and Superman's 70th, there was nary a peep. And when they would be asked about it, they're like, we don't like, we don't, not, we don't like, I'm sorry, that sounds like wrong. I'm putting words in people's mouths. But they're like, we, we you know, they, they basically were like, we didn't feel like it. You know, it, it, it wasn't on our radar. But. Uh, I'm going back 25 years to when DC was celebrating its 50th anniversary. And I think it's fair to say that the 1985 was probably one of the most important years in DC's publishing history. Uh, especially because that's when not only Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe came out, but Crisis on Infinite Earths. But they released a special that year. Uh, for the whopping price of $2.95, which was like four times the uh, normal price of a comic at, at that time. And this is the 50 Who Made DC Great. It's got this really cool cover of Clark Kent holding a gold DC bullet. If you don't know what the DC bullet is, it was the little logo for DC Comics that appeared in the upper left-hand corner of all of their books, well, just about all of their books, from about the mid-'70s until 2002-2003 when they adopted the swoosh, as I like to call it. It doesn't have the same ring as a bullet, though, uh, to me, but apparently the, the bullet didn't look good on merchandise. Whatever. Yeah, I I miss it, and I can't stand their new logo. I know that's very, oh, he's just being an old school fanboy. But yeah, I've never never uh, cottoned to the new one. But this is an interesting little project. It, it covers fifty people who or or organizations who through starring in a comic book movie or television series, for being a writer, for being a publisher, for being behind the scenes, uh, for licensing, uh, of the people that made an impact on DC Comics from 1935 to 1985. And we start off with a letter from Jeanette Kahn, who goes over, you know, the, you know, the power of reading comic books and the, you know, the importance of DC comics. And then we get a two page splash of 
covers of significant issues uh, from DC's history, like Detective Comics number one, Superman number one, Detective 27, All-Star number three, Flash Comics one, Sensation Comics uh, number one, uh, Strange Adventures, the 3D Superman special adventure comics, uh, number 247, which was the first appearance of the Legion of Superheroes, first appearance of Sergeant Rock. But around these are little blurbs from celebrities like Ray Bradbury and Gloria Steinem and Gene Siskel and even Walter Koenig, uh, who was Chekhov on the Star Trek series. And, and they like Koenig's reads, as a child, they dra- daydreamed about being the sidekick to comic book heroes. Now here I am, 40 years later, sidekicks to heroes who might have come right out of a comic book. If there hadn't been Robin, Speedy, Stripesy, and Doiby Dickles, there wouldn't be Chekhov. Stack of thanks to the thousand, uh, a thousand issue highs for all the entertainment, which I thought was cool. And then it goes through like a very, very brief history of DC Comics. And just, just to give you the quick list, the 50 who made DC great are MC Gaines, who is acknowledged as like father of the comic book. Uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, who sort of founded DC Comics. Harry Donenfeld, one of the early bigwigs. Jack Leibowitz, one of the early bigwigs. Uh, without Leibowitz and Donenfeld, I don't think you would have a DC Comics today. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Warner Publishing Services. Sheldon Mayer, who uh, pretty much kind of discovered Superman. Right, he's mm-hmm. the one that told Vincent Sullivan, "Hey, you need to put this in the uh, in Action Comics number one." So he deserves a huge thank. Uh, thanks, Saul Harrison, Bub, Bud Budner, and this is one of those names that I don't recognize. Yeah, I never heard of this off guy. the off the off their back, but he was one of the people that was one of the early distributors ah. of comic books, and it kind of developed the system. Or and the engine that that worked at the time. We also have Gardner Fox, who God, the list of comic book characters he created and stories he wrote would be would be miles long. William Moulton Marston, who was the creator of Wonder Woman and the lie detector. Uh, one of them, yes. Uh, email Caresbilk, who was one of the people that brought. DC Comics to France. Uh, Carol Reinstorm, he was one of the people that was responsible for making DC International. The Fleischer Studios, Superman, awesome. Love it. Uh, Bud Collier, the voice of Superman on the radio. Kirk Allen, the first live-action Superman. Mort Wissinger, or Weisinger, or however you pronounce that, who was the father of Superman through the 50s and 60s. Whitney Ellsworth, an early editor, and he was the producer of the Adventures of Superman television series. George Reeves, uh, artist Wayne Boring, followed immediately by artist Kurt Swan. It's kind of interesting to see them on a two-page spread together, simply in the differences that they uh, and how they approached Superman artistically. Love Wayne Boring. Uh, Bernard Trout, who was one of the people that... Uh, managed to get Superman unbanned in France, which is kind of an interesting uh, interesting person to throw out there. World Color Press, it says 50 years of printing comics. 
Robert Kaninger, we talked about him two episodes ago, I think. Julia Schwartz, Jerry Bales, Roy Thomas, Adam West, and Burt Ward. Uh. The (laughs) The Licensing Company of America. This has got a really cool picture of a closet full of DC merchandise, like Batman and Superman underoos, winter gloves, uh, PJs, and a bunch of superpowers toys, which were brand new at the time. Uh, Carmine Infantino, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Adolf Katabek. Oh, sorry. I didn't pronounce that at all. I don't know why I said Katabek. Cabatech, excuse me, and he was one of the people that brought DC to Germany. Hanna-Barbera Productions, I I don't think we can uh, mitigate the Super Friends involvement in making DC popular in the 70s and 80s. Ilya and Alexander Salkind, Christopher Reeve, uh, give uh, Scott a minute here, Linda Carter, (gasps) Uh, Phil Suling, who was one of the people to basically take comic book distribution from the newsstands and do direct distribution to specialty stores. Uh, Bud Plant, who was one of the early comic book retailers. And looking at this picture of Marv Wolfman and George Perez, uh, where he had a full head of hair and a full beard, and if you see him now... It's really different. I didn't think he ever had a full head of hair, but that's just me. (laughs) Uh, Frank Miller, Helen Slater. Mm -hmm. I like her. I'd argue that she was one of the 50 that made DC. Yeah. 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 How the hell did she get on that list now that you you mentioned that? Um, She looked damn hot in that outfit, though. Yeah, no doubt. This is my favorite entry. Superman peanut butter. Yeah. So, uh, is, I, did Superman pretzels make the list? No, and Batman bread didn't either. Oh, so. Do you remember Superman pretzels? No, I do not. They were good. You know, I'm I'm something. I would consider myself something of a pretzel connoisseur. And Superman pretzels, they were good, man. They were really good. They uh, they did it right with those. I, I don't think they stuck around very long, but hell yeah, I remember Superman peanut butter. Had, had some bad. awesome commercials, man. If yes. you go to YouTube. You can Fully see animated. Them. Yeah, they're beautiful. I mean, I wish that they had done a, an animated series of Superman in that style. It was that it was gorgeous. Yeah, it was very uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Yeah, you're right. It was. And that's why I liked it so much. And finally, and I think my personal favorite of this, Kenner Products, because we get the entire first line or first wave of Superpowers figures with the Hall of Justice in the background. And man, I love these figures. That I would give you that one if Mego was on that list because Mego I think did more to to keep superheroes alive at a time when when you know comic the whole comic book thing was you know maybe waning or maybe uh you know it was that post Batman era. I can agree with that. I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe Migos were under the whole licensed thing, but superpowers were the big thing at the time, so I'm not surprised that they gave it its own entry. Right. Uh, essentially. That happens a lot in these types of things when they talk about, you know, what made DC great historically or any kind of company historically, and they always mention, like, the hot new thing that really hasn't made much of a historical <laughs> impact yet. How could they forget the the Superman Atari 2600 game? 
Yeah, that's. I'm looking. That's not in here. <laughs> no, I'm, that was kidding because that's exactly what you're talking about. If they had put that in there, you'd be like, yeah. why the hell is that on the list? <laughs> that game sucked, man. But then we get three more pages of classic covers. First appearance of the Justice League, Flash 123, uh, first issue of Plastic Man from 1966, uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76, House of Secrets, first appearance of Swamp Thing, the Shazam number one from the 70s, hmm. uh, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, which a couple assholes talked about a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, World of Krypton number one. Which was this is where I learned that this was DC's first miniseries. I've always been kind of fascinated by that. Uh, the New Teen Titans number one, Camelot three thousand. I never liked that series. I've never read it. Uh, I read it once, and I remember kind of liking it at the time. But the more I think about it, the more I don't like it. If that makes any sense. I just always thought a Thurian legend was really, really boring. So I didn't really want to read it or reimagining or whatever the hell it's supposed to be. Just never really had any interest. We've got the Star Raiders, which was by Elliot S. Magan and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, which was DC's first high-quality, full-color graphic novel, Every Panel a Painting. And uh, I was never really interested in it because, well, this is going to sound terrible, I'm a superhero guy. Right. And uh, that's what I'm attracted to. I would have rather seen a fully painted Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Justice League story. Hell yeah. Uh, Ronin, which was Frank Miller's... Uh, how do I explain this? It's like the thing they let Frank do so he would do things like Dark Knight Returns. Right. It's like it's like do our do our Batman stories, do our do do the high profile superhero stuff, and you can do your own little independent type work as well. And on the uh, the last page, you have New Fun Magazine number one and Action Comics number one. And Who's Who number one and Crisis number one. Why the hell don't they have New Fun number six, I wonder? Because I I understand New Fun number one, its importance and its place in history, but New Fun number six is much more historically relevant than number one would be. Because New Fun was the first comic book DC ever published. Right, yeah. So, there you go. And you've got people like Stephen King. Uh, I'm not... I'm a fan of Stephen King. He gets mm-hmm. a lot of crap. I like his writing. Oh, you I do got, too. You got Gene Simmons, um, you know, Rock God from Kiss, uh, Jim Henson, David L. Whopper, Walper, or however you pronounce that. I've never been there. You got Stan Lee, publisher of Marvel Comics, who makes a a comment about uh, comic books in general, but not DC, which I kind of thought was funny. Uh, Susan Stamberg, who was a commentator from NPR, Roger Ebert, Brooke Shields. Is she, she a big deal? By or is she, has her had yeah. her star faded by eighty five? No, she was still a big deal. Uh, Carol Bellamy, and one that I really liked, just because she's got so much geek cred that I don't think people give her credit for. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg has has a little thing in here too. Okay, what the hell has she got to do with DC Comics? Nothing, but she's got geek cred, and she was a star at the time. Yeah, I guess. Uh, she was Guinan. I liked Guinan. But no, I, I vividly remember buying this when... I, it was sometime when I was in junior high, and this thing was just was like gasoline on that fire of my love of learning the history 
of the comic book companies and why and how the series and characters were created in addition to reading the history in the in the books themselves right the yeah. text as they would call and this was like just just one of the one of the little foundations that built on that that now i've got i don't have what i would call a library full of books but i've got a bunch of books on the on the history of, of DC comics and comic books in general, and DC's got one of those histories that uh, that would make for a good dramatic movie because of all. I think it'd make for like a good HBO series, something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just because a lot happened. This is a very sanitized history of DC comics, right? You know, it's published by the company, so they're going to have a certain amount of, uh, you know company line going on i mean they, they never mentioned really that uh, malcolm wheeler nicholson was kind of a fly-by-night publisher who more often than not left artists and writers and creators uh without payment right and uh, or harry donen or the fact that harry donenfeld got into publishing comics basically because his skin mags were about to get him arrested so he needed something legitimate to get into so <laughs> So, but but still, you know, as, as a primer or primer, I, I've never really been sure how to pronounce that word. Uh, it, it's great, and if you find this in a fifty cent box, because this is pure fifty cent fodder at this point. Though I'm kind of wondering if it'll go up in up in value this year. Is this the one that's got Clark Kent on the cover of it? Yes, it's got a, Mur- a Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson with the Ben Day dots all over his yeah. face. Yeah. Yeah. In the classic, uh, you know, red and black striped tie blue suit. And it says, suddenly, 50 years later. And on the back, it's completely black. And there's a 50 at the bottom, and the zero on the 50 is the DC bullet. And it, it's an impressive design. Every uh, All of the, the pictures of people have little sketches behind them. Uh, kind of doing goofy illustrations of, of how uh, of what the person did and how they uh, got into the business or what, you know it's like in Roy Thomas's entry for example they have him as a school teacher taking a comic book from a kid and then him searching for issues of all-star comics and finally making it into comics it's really cool it just just really really neat god i love this thing i was so glad when i dug it out <laughs> Seemed good fodder for this show. Absolutely. Well, that's my entry. All right. Well, we're running a little long, so I'm going to uh, breeze right into the uh, the last segment of the show here. Apologize for the length. This is The Incredible Hulk number 319. This was the last uh, burn issue, uh, unfortunately. And uh, I'm just going to do a quick and dirty synopsis on this one, and and then we'll discuss it briefly. This is the May 1986 issue uh, entitled Member of the Wedding by John Byrne and Keith Williams. Rick Jones, uh, having heard of the impending marriage of Bruce Banner and Betty Ross, shows up at the Gamma Base. Uh, Bruce is shocked and delighted to see his old friend, asks how the heck he got past security, and this leads into a whole lot of reminiscing uh, about the fact that if Rick weren't so good at getting past security, 
uh, Banner wouldn't have had his little alter ego problems all these years. Uh, the issue consists mainly of reflecting back on their lives by both Banner and Rick, including Rick's sidekick stints with the likes of the Hulk, Captain America, Captain Marvel, and even Rom the Space Knight. And I really love seeing uh, Burn render Rom again. I don't know if this predates Burn's issue of Rom or not. I, I think it does, but I'm not sure. But uh, but anyway, I, I always like seeing Burn draw Rom. He just did a really uh, a dynamic Rom. He even did a couple of uh, covers of... I think it was Rom that had that guest starred um, Alpha Flight, and that was really cool too. Um, simultaneously interspersed throughout this entire issue is Doc Samson's ongoing epic tussle with the Hulk, which I'm not really going to touch on. But actually, that's strangely enough, that's the part of this issue that I like the best is that fight. But it's really just a fight. There's not really much to talk about. So anyway, after an awful lot of talk 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 a lot of exposition in this issue um (laughs) on the banner ross jones side of the issue um the big moment finally arrives and bruce and betty stand ready to be wed as the ceremony begins and the pastor asks the obligatory you know does anybody object you know let him speak now kind of thing a crazy bedraggled and armed thunderbolt ross shows up and threatens to kill Banner rather than let the doctor marry his daughter. Um, During the confrontation, Rick Jones is shot seemingly point-blank center mass, which I had a real problem (laughs) with this issue. I mean, it really looks like he's shooting him right in the freaking heart, like from a foot away. It totally looks like Rick should just collapse dead to the floor. So at this point, one pissed-off Betty Ross confronts her deranged father, and while Banner tends to Rick, Betty tells her dad what a rotten old son-of-a-bitchin'-bastard he's been to her and everybody else all these years. She wraps up by telling him that the only way that he'll be able to stop her from marrying Banner is to shoot, shoot her too. So at this point, he collapses a broken man. Uh, Banner insists that Rick needs immediate medical attention, but Rick says, Ah, I'll be alright. I can hold out. Let's get you crazy kids hitched. So while Rick lies on the floor of the church, and I'm imagining him you know, bleeding to death because he's got the hole the size of a softball blown out the back of him, Bruce and Betty kiss as husband and wife. Um, first thing I like about this issue is the cover you have a shocked Rick Jones and Bruce Banner and the priest and uh, not so much Betty and the uh, the Asian woman that's her maid of honor looking at us, basically, and there's a shadow over them that's green that looks like the Hulk. Right. But that's actually General Thunderbolt Ross, so the really, good, re- really good little bait and switch there for me. This is a bizarre issue, mainly because of how Byrne structured it. It's not like you get like a whole page of what's going on with Bruce and Rick Jones and Betty and all that. And then, you know, cut to what's going on with the Hulkbusters and Doc Samson. And and I've got to say right off the bat, the Hulkbusters portion of this issue, it, it's like the third or fourth straight issue that we get the, the same thing over and over and over again. Not bad because... I like seeing the Hulk tear it up with 
big giant robots and Doc Samson. But at this point, it's kind of repetitive. You know, I'd like to see something different. I mean, the main difference here is that uh, is that Rocky, you know, uh, Laroquet is injured, and the Hulk's about to pretty much kind of do him in, and Saunders uh, has to kind of reason with uh, Doc Samson to save him, and because Doc Samson's like, you know, this guy, this guy wants to kill me. Screw you, and everyone that looks like you. You know, I'm not saving him, and and you know, Saunders does the whole thing. You're a superhero, blah 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 blah. And I right. like the line, "Blast you, Saunders! You make it very hard to be unreasonable." <laughs> but again, in the back of my my mind, with the, with this whole Hulkbusters thing, is that these people have fucked themselves over again and again and again, and they always need someone else to kind of bail them out. Right. It's just like, God, these people are no wonder they can't get work anywhere else. They're incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, and Saunders, you know, he's the one that's responsible for Carolyn's death. Right. So you know, of course, he's going to be the one to try to save Rocky because you know it's, it would be just another notch in his death belt. So, but the the scenes with Rick Jones and Bruce Banner were actually kind of interesting because we get to see Byrne play with that dynamic. We get to see what a what a whore Rick Jones was as a sidekick. Right, because man, you know, if if you were a toy tie-in or a or or or, or a Cree warrior or Captain America or the Hulk, man, Rick Jones, I'm you know, Rick Jones, you know who Rick Jones should hook up with Alicia Masters. I think that is a <laughs> that is a match made in heaven right there. But um, you know, it was interesting to see them talk about the you know Bruce's origin and that kind of stuff. I get a big kick out of that that sort of thing. But again, that takes up like the majority of the issue. It really doesn't get good until the actual wedding when Thunderbolt shows up. And, you know, you're right. He he shoots Rick Jones like in the in the in almost in the chest and the stomach. And Betty finally stands up with him to him, which I guess was Burns' entire point of this issue. Right. Is that Betty is going to stand up and, and actually be an adult and, and 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 put her father into in, in in his place, but even then she doesn't really feel too good about it. Now, the only the only nitpick I have about this is that when she when you know when she's like you know shoot me you know if you're gonna if you're gonna shoot anybody here shoot me and she takes the gun away from him she takes the clip out, but that I'm assuming is. Uh, either a semi-automatic or automatic pistol. So there is still a bullet jacketed in that thing. Right. So uh, it would have been nice to kind of see her slide the hammer back and or slide the slide back and see the little bullet pop out. But that's just one of my picky gun things. But still, you know, entertaining, just not the way I think Byrne meant to leave. I think it would have been interesting to, to see him finish. I, I would have liked to have known where it was going. Because um, I have actually read the next issue. I read it last night, just mostly out of curiosity. I wanted to see where it where it goes, and I wouldn't say it's it's an immediate downhill slide, but it was a step down. A, a lot of it was because you know we we were stepping off of the burn artwork or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I want to kind of save our our thoughts on this as a whole for next episode, because we are going to kind of wrap up the whole Hulk thing with uh Marvel fanfare 29, which kind of, it doesn't really 
tie in heavily to the storyline that was going on here, but it, but it is a nice little bow on the package, so to speak. So I, I'd uh, like to discuss the the thing as a whole. But speaking just for this issue alone, um, I think it's the the fight that makes this issue for me because everything else. I don't know. I didn't really care for it because I, I didn't really care for the wedding. I didn't really care for the thing with, with Ross coming back and all that. I think the thing with Rick being shot point blank is really silly, especially after that. Then he's like, oh, don't worry about me. Go ahead and get me. I'm thinking, dude, come on. You know, I mean, he's he's got to be critically injured, you would think. That's a gut shot. It takes hours to die. They can <laughs> I right guess, there. but it doesn't look to me like it's in the gut. It looks to me like it's like right in the chest. But, um, but also, uh, this was the first time it really occurred to me that they should not really be friends. That they should not really be this chummy. I mean, <laughs> Banner had spent at this point many, 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 many years on the run, living a life of absolute pure hell. Because of Rick Jones, there's no escaping that fact that it's Rick Jones's fault that all this shit happened to Banner. And so I, I think that this story would have been a lot better if now that there had been some time and distance between them, that Rick pops back into Banner's life and Banner's resentful. That Banner's had time to consider all this and live the life that he had to live and he was away from Jones for however long it's been since Jones has been in this title. And and Banner, in the interim, has come to realize, that little bastard is the reason my life sucks, you know? And so that Rick pops back up, and there's an immediate tension and an immediate confrontation. And it, it could have even been really good as a slow build, that, that Jones is like, hey, Doc, how's it? And then immediately senses there's something wrong. And over the course of the issue... He finally gets it out of Banner, and there's like a big explosive confrontation at the end where Banner's like, this is all your fault, you know, and, and yeah. it all comes to light, you know. I think that would have played much more dramatically, much more entertaining, and much more realistically, to, to my mind, rather than him throwing his arms around Rick and giving him a big sloppy kiss. I, I just... You know, I mean, you know, friendship is great, and I love friendship stories. Don't get me wrong; some of my very favorite movies of all time are basically stories of you know how far would you go for your friend. I love that. However, in this instance, I, it, it kind of stretches my credibility a little bit that, that that Banner wouldn't at least deep down, maybe even you know subconsciously, have some serious fucking resentment towards Rick Jones. I don't buy it at all, and that was really a major stumbling block to my enjoyment of this issue. But uh, getting back to the other thing, you know what what you were saying about the fight. Um, I disagree. I mean, I would I would still be buying this title today if this Hulk uh, Samson fight was going on, drawn by Byrne, because I think it's just awesome. That's what I come to the Hulk for. I want to see him tearing shit up, massive destruction, and him fighting somebody who's more or less on his power level. That's exactly what I picked the Hulk up for. And so the fact that Byrne had this continually running battle in every issue of his run thrills me to no end. That's what I think makes this such an extraordinary run and, and why I think it's it's very underrated as a story because this was Byrne bringing 
Burns a game to it art wise and everything, and the the panels, panel after panel, of him and Samson exchanging blows just just thrills me. I love it. it it's beautiful to look at, and uh, you know, it's the saving grace of this issue because the the A story with Banner and Ross and and Jones just did nothing for me at all. Well, you know. I- I, I, I certainly cannot disagree with you that one of the things that brings you to the Hulk again, again, and again is just to see the Hulk fight some robot or someone on his power level and see shit get torn up and collateral damage and all that. But I also like a little variety in that. Right. And I'm not saying that that I that I that I don't like it when you get that on a continuous basis. It just gets a little wearying. After a while, sometimes you just kind of want to see more of a laid back story of, of Bruce Banner having to deal with something. And that comes, I think, from being such a fan of the Peter David right. era of the Hulk, where you really didn't get where you got the Hulk tearing shit up just on a different level. And there was more of a more of a psychological component instead of a lot of, uh, you know, even runs of the Hulk I love are basically melodrama action pieces. Right. You know, it's like Bruce Banner gets involved in X, Y, and Z, and the Hulk has to come out to bail him out. But, right. You know, by no means a bad issue. Just, uh... Just... I, I wanted to get beyond the Hulk busters at this point. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't like them. I didn't like them from the beginning, and I don't, I don't like them here. As a matter of fact, I, I would have been thrilled to actually see them... Over the course of this series, I would I would like it much better if they had been introduced right at the beginning of Burns' run, and then slowly were taken out over the course of it. I think that could have been a really interesting story as well. That maybe do the Samson thing a little bit differently. That Samson finds his drive and motivation to take out the Hulk because of what what happened to the Hulkbusters, rather than him constantly be like, you know, in the midst of a battle with the Hulk and going, Jesus, these assholes keep butting in again, you know, because that's really (laughs) so much of this issue is that of him being in the midst of a tussle with the Hulk and these Hulk busters keep butting into the fight. You know, that that's a lot of this issue. So I, I think it could have been better if if for whatever reason he was trying to avenge their deaths or some, I don't know, something like that. Cause yeah, I don't, I don't think much of the Hulkbusters. They could have easily gotten crunched and I wouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to wrap this baby up. You, did you want to talk about, uh, the, the, the big news, the big, uh, the big deal Hulk we, related? Yes, we, we, we haven't, we are announcing a contest, a back to the bins contest. Woo-hoo! And, Basically, it's going to work like this. It's going to be burn Hulk related since we've been going over that series uh, for the last, you know, for the since Scott and I basically started being co-hosts of the show. We wanted to have something that was kind of tied into that, and so basically, this is what we're going to do. You, li- if you listen to this episode through iTunes and don't go through the Libsyn page, we're going to tell you go to www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. And on the posting for this episode, there will be five trivia questions regarding the Hulk, and this run in uh, specifically. So it, 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 you know, it doesn't matter um, how minute it could be. It doesn't matter how general it can be. 
the fun of this contest is the the trivia part of the contest isn't actually the important part of the contest. It's just a fun thing that Scott and I wanted to do because pretty much it's all going to come down to the luck of the draw. Right. We're going to have the trivia questions out there. You answer them. It's open book. We don't care. If you track down these things on Wikipedia and other Hulk sites, or if you dig through your back issues, doesn't matter. You don't have to do it off the top of your head. Answer the questions. Send it to backtothebins at gmail.com. We're going to take all of the correct entries. We're going to throw those names into a hat. We're going to pick one out, and your prize is the John Byrne Visionaries Incredible Hulk trade paperback. Uh, it's my copy. I have the issues. I bought the trade just because oh, I want the trade on my shelf. But I keep looking at it. I'm like, you know what? I have the issues. I don't need this. So I've read it once, and then it would. And now it can. And now it can be yours. It's a prize package worth seven thousand four hundred dollars. Well, pesos, but that's okay. just entirely beside the point. Sorry, the economy isn't all that good down there. Anyways, <laughs> but no, seriously, a hell of a prize though. You, I mean, you get you get the the visionaries trade. I, that I think that's a fantastic prize. So if if you if you used to have the issues and you want them again, but don't feel like tracking down the back issues, if you just like having a trade paperback on your shelf, if you just like getting free shit, mm-hmm. this is your chance to do so. And we're we're really excited to be able to do something like this and drum up some interest in the in this run of the Hulk and in, you know, the show in general. So I want to specify though, what, what Mike said, make sure that you send your submissions for this to, uh, back to the bins at gmail.com. Cause messaging me through Skype or Facebook or something, ain't going to do it for this one. You got to send it to the email. And I would appreciate it also if you put, um, in the subject line, something, you know, the, the word contest somewhere in there, just so that I, I know at a quick glance that you know your email specifically is related to the content. It just makes it uh, easier for us to determine who's the first person. You know who who was the first one to respond with the correct uh, the correct answers, and that's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a game where you can cheat, but it's all up to chance. <laughs> all right, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.